no blood at all on any of the room's baseboards. The killer, I realized, must have wiped them down afterward. Even after forensic lab tests confirmed that scenario, there was still no obvious message of the kind left as a taunt by the seasoned serial killer at a crime scene. This was evidence of a disordered perpetrator clinging to the control afforded by familiar routine, of someone, I thought, who might recently have left a psychiatric facility. Ultimately, investigation did indeed bear out that theory. The perpetrator was a young man just released from a California state mental hospital, whose job had been cleaning the baseboards on his ward. Now, at a rural crime scene near a farmer's field, I was trying to solve the brutal murder of an innocent fifteen-year-old girl, and I began to try to decipher what our killer had written with his savagery. Bloodstains pointed to the precise location of the murder, a dense wood thick with stands of evergreen and maple, fifty feet from the side of the road. But the killer had chosen not to leave his victim there, and I knew what that meant. Any subject with normal human response, one who had, say, raped this young girl and then in a panic killed her, would have done all he could to hide his crime and avoid detection. He would have left her in the woods, perhaps in a shallow grave, or at least made some effort to hide her corpse in the brush. But this killer followed a different imperative. He had deposited his victim where he was certain she would be found. Why would he do such a thing? Was he a braggart? A provocateur? I didn't think so. I have seen sexual predators make unspeakable displays of their victims, violating them with gun barrels and broom handles, in what hardened investigators refer to as stick jobs. But this killer had shown no such contempt. It seemed to me that there was only one plausible explanation. He had moved his victim because he did not want to leave her in the woods, unseen, where she might be vulnerable to insects or animals. He wanted whoever found her to appreciate her, as he had, with her freshness and beauty still intact. Even so, he might have dragged her by the hair or simply dumped her body. Instead, he had gone to the trouble of laying her carefully on a raised berm, higher than the surrounding ground. And then I began to understand. This killer did what human beings have done with objects of veneration since time immemorial. He had placed his victim on an altar. Quickly the pieces began to fit. After he had brutalized her, he felt remorse very nearly a tenderness toward her. He treated her gently after he killed her, and I knew now exactly how he had transported her to this resting place. He had carried her from the spot where he had killed her, the way a parent would a sleeping child, slipping one hand beneath her back and the other under her knees. Then, when he laid her down softly on the ground, as if not to wake her, her knees had rolled gently to one side. What did this mean? It meant that he knew her. Finally, it was clear to me. Whoever killed this young girl had also, in his own evil way, loved her. How can those two things, love and hate, exist together in a person? In the same way, I believe, that good and evil exist in the world, in a constant state of tension, fighting each other for dominance. I know something about that struggle.
I believe that I have a deeper understanding of these things than most people do. My work has given me a profound respect for what humans suffer at the hands of evil, and a particular sensitivity for what its victims endure. During every investigation that I participate in, there is always an invisible observer at my shoulder, whose presence I never forget. Regardless of the circumstances of a case, I am always giving voice to its silent victim. What must this young girl's final minutes have been like? Did she cry out while he was repeatedly stabbing her? Or keep silent, breathing like a wounded animal, watching for the next glint of a blade? Did her thoughts turn to her parents in those final seconds, when she was overwhelmed by the deepest loneliness she had ever known? Did she experience a dissociative response, the sense of drifting upward and watching her own death as if from above? Or did she sink mercifully into unconsciousness and feel nothing as her life ebbed away? The most difficult part of solving a case is the fathoming of it, the understanding of the measure of evil that produced it. The rest, the legwork and interrogation, come only after the intuiting, as the means of proving an investigative hypothesis. In this instance, once I had a clear picture of how the crime had occurred, the rest was not difficult. Investigators narrowed their focus to a relatively short list of potential suspects, questioned them thoroughly, and ultimately charged and convicted an obsessive young man, the young girl's neighbor. When I was a young man, a friend taught me the ancient art of dousing, and after a time I became something of a practitioner myself, finding water underground as a kind of parlor trick for friends. It might seem odd that a man so rooted in grim reality would take an interest in something so ethereal. In fact, I'm fascinated by the unseen forces at play in the lives of human beings. Still, I'm sometimes challenged by abstract intellectual discussion about the nature of evil. If Hitler genuinely believed that he was carrying out a noble mission by exterminating Jews, some wonder, was he truly evil? Were there mitigating factors, others ask, for the genocide of his countrymen carried out by Cambodia's Pol Pot? What exactly runs through the mind of an Osama bin Laden? I've never had the time to engage in such armchair dialectics. My job has been to try to stop human predators before they kill again, and after studying them so closely over so many years, to me, their traits seem clearly recognizable. They are rational, sadistic, often intelligent, and almost invariably narcissistic. They see themselves as living in a realm somewhere above the rest of us, in a place where the rules of normal society do not apply. Over the years I've drawn up a list of their common operating principles, something that I call the anti-commandments. That which you love is what I most seek to destroy. Life is as meaningless as death. There are few things more pleasurable than hurting someone who is trying to help me. People die too easily. It should be more painful and take longer. The depth of this psychopathic evil is beyond the comprehension of most normal people. I have seen it many times. A pedophile is arrested, a man from a comfortable upper-class neighborhood. Suddenly all of his neighbors express shock and disbelief. 
He was such a fine, upstanding man, a doting father. Why, he even coached Little League. He can't possibly have done what he's accused of. What those good people don't fully comprehend is that, as a pedophile, this man is, above all, a sexual abuser of children. That is what he is at his core. He hurts children because to him their suffering is of no consequence. It is a meaningless byproduct of behavior that makes him feel good, and his own pleasure is more important to him than anything or anyone else. Invariably, even from behind prison bars, he will never concede that what he did was damaging to a child. No, he insists, what he did was done out of love. It's the rest of the world that doesn't understand. The reality is that this man's wife, his nice house in the suburbs, his coaching job, even his own children, are props, the artifice that covers up and facilitates what he truly is. He continues to do what he does because that is what he cherishes above all else. What is most real about him is his evil. Evil is more than a vague notion. It is an entity, and it is manifest on the earth. It has reflexes and intuition, senses vulnerability, and changes its form to adapt to its surroundings. Those who do not believe the devil walks this earth have not seen the things that I have seen. The stories I will relate are not fabrications. I have witnessed the unbelievable, eviscerated children, mothers who have sold their own toddlers into prostitution and profited from the videotapes of them being victimized by strangers, fathers who sleep with their daughters and their daughters' daughters, a man who...